I like a good movie. You, are you with me on that? I mean, I, I enjoy a good movie. And, and the type of movies that I like are the ones that are based on a true story. You know, I mean, there's a lot of good movies and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the, the ones that are based on a true story, they're really kind of impactful. Uh, Mary Jo and I just actually sat down and were able to watch one of these types of movies. The movie is called Lion. Have you seen this? Incredible movie. It tells the true story of a young Indian boy who accidentally gets on a train. He's five years old. He gets on a train, accidentally takes him over a thousand miles away from his home in India, and he's lost. He's lost in a completely separate part of India where they don't even speak his language, and he's just literally lost on the streets of Calcutta. He's eventually taken into a, a home for children, and he's adopted by an Australian couple who take him into their home into uh, Tasmania, of all places. And he ends up growing up in Tasmania. And I won't spoil the rest of the story for you, but if you want to take a look at that, it's a great, I, I recommend it. There's another kind of a movie that grabs your attention right from the start. It's the kind of movie where the movie opens with the main character who is right in the middle of a war or conflict. Perhaps it's a battle scene. You know that type of movie where the credits kind of disappear and boom, you're right in the midst of this action. I guess you could say Star Wars might be a, a good example of this. You know, those, that opening scroll of, of words, you know, kind of goes off into the distance and then you see the stars and then it pans down and then the action is going. There's lasers and phasers and all that kind of stuff. Blasters, I guess, to use a Star Wars term, uh, is going on. It's a conflict. It's a war. And this is exactly how it is for the person who's been born from above, born again. When you were born from above into the kingdom of God, your eyes became open to a greater conflict that is going on in the world today. When you were born again, really born from above, into the kingdom of God, this is exactly what happens to you. You hopefully very soon become aware that you're in a battle. You're in a war zone, a battle zone, or as Kenny Loggins sang about, the danger zone. <laughs> the question is, what is this battle? What is this war? Well, that takes us back to our last study in Genesis chapter 3, we discussed it a couple of weeks ago. It is this battle that is now present between the seeds. What? What's that? Between the seeds. You remember when God was doling out those penalties, the punishment, the curse, if you will, of sin, he spoke to the nakash, and if you don't know that term, that's the biblical term for the serpent. And we explained that in detail as we went through that particular study uh, in the opening chapter of Genesis chapter three, but he spoke to the Nakash and the Lord God said to him, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. There then would be a battle, an ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so when you turn the page from chapter three to Genesis chapter four, you begin to see the beginning of the seed war the battle of seeds. Whether you realize it or not, you're right in the middle of a battle. You're right in the middle of a war zone. 
For the, question, for the Christian, the question becomes, what is my place in this battle? What is my place in this battle of seeds? We will see this in our study tonight. Your place as a believer is putting first the two greatest commandments of the Lord that are in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So let's, divide, let's dive into the study here in Genesis 4 and, and see how this plays out. And, and we can see our place in the battle of seeds. First, love the Lord your God. Let's pick it up. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Let's stop right there. Our place in the battle of seeds, our place as a believer, first and foremost, is to love the Lord our God. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul and strength. This is our place. At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were sent out from the Garden of Eden. You remember that? They were, they were driven out. God drove them out from the garden uh, into the probably at that point, the wilderness, you know, I mean, it was really uh, uh, just a, a wilderness. They were uh, blessed to have been placed within the garden. Now they're driven out. And here in chapter four, we see what will become of this seed war that was spoken of by the Lord uh, in chapter three. The, the verse there is Genesis three fifteen. The, remember, we talked about that, the proto-evangelium. It's there found the first gospel. Uh, and so Adam, here we come to Genesis 4, and the text tells us Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she bore Cain. Now, the word there for knew in the Hebrew is a word, word you're probably familiar with. It's yada. And so Adam, yada, 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 Eve, and she bore Cain. A amen? And so look, 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 this, is, this is how, this is it, right? And uh, <clears throat> so they named him Cain which means acquired or begotten. And so it's, a, it's an interesting name because as, you, as the rest of the Bible plays out, you'll see these genealogies, right? And you'll see, you know, so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so. So here's the first begot, and that's what his name is. The guy that was the first begotten guy, he's, his name actually is acquired or begotten. So they had acquired a man from the Lord. And Eve also bore again, the text tells us, and delivered Abel, his brother, now, one thing we're not told in the, in the text here is we're not told how long 
of a uh, time frame there was between the births. Uh, it, could, it could have been uh, you know, a subsequent birth, um, but let me submit this to you. There are scholars, there are good commentators that suggest that the boys could have been twins uh, and that uh, Cain was the firstborn and then she bore again and bore Abel, his brother. And, uh, and so it, they, they could have been uh, twins. As the story plays out, this would uh, certainly establish the precedent as to why the Lord seems to select the second born for his plan. If you're familiar with scripture, uh, you see this throughout scripture. It's one of those kind of head scratcher type things. It seems as if, as the scripture plays out, God is, is selecting that second born uh, to, to work his plan in the world. And uh, of course, uh, Abel is killed in our text tonight that we see. Um, and then later on, we'll talk about how Seth is born and he's the replacement for Abel. And so Seth becomes that replacement. But just to show you a little bit about how that plays out, this preference for the second born, uh, remember Isaac and Rebekah, they had twins. The firstborn was Esau and the second Jacob. And remember, Jacob came out grasping at the heel of Esau. And of course, you, if you know the scripture, you know the story about how uh, Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob and Jacob acquired the birthright and therefore he was the one that was blessed and uh, selected uh, to receive, uh, you remember the little, uh, you know, the, that little deception thing that Rebecca had going on with Isaac and Isaac was a little blind and they had the whole thing going on and so Jacob was blessed and of course he becomes the patriarch of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Then there's another occasion where Joseph, remember Joseph, this is after uh, the, the whole family relocates to, to Egypt after the seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, after Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, and Jacob relocates uh, down to Egypt, and you remember at that time that Joseph brought his two sons that God had given to him, Manasseh and Ephraim, and remember that occasion where uh, Joseph brings Manasseh and Ephraim, and he puts the firstborn right at, Joseph, at, um, at uh, Jacob's right hand because he's going to that you know that, that that concept of the right hand of blessing that was a that was a principle a biblical principle the right hand would bless the one who was to receive that that firstborn blessing, and if you remember from the text, uh, he begins to give the blessing, but. But Jacob crosses his hands and he begins to give the blessing. And if you remember, Joseph tries to correct him and move his hands. And Jacob says, no, no. And so there seems to play out throughout scripture, this preference for the second born. So we see here in Genesis four, as it plays out, you had Cain, you had Abel and their brothers. Now the text tells us Cain was a tiller of the ground which means he was like a farmer. He worked in agriculture. Abel was a shepherd. He took care of the flocks. So you had, a, you had a farmer and a shepherd, and this is what they do. This is what they did. The, the Bible speaks very clearly. This is what they did. Now, in that sense, they each had a calling. They each had a calling in their life. They each had something to do. And from this, I think we can learn that it's good for everybody to have something to do. Everyone should have something to do, amen? It's God's will that we should have something to do in this world. 
It's not God's will that we should be like, you know, twiddling our thumbs and wasting away the days playing like, you know, I don't know, solitaire on our phones or something. I mean, a little bit. That's fine. Okay. You know, you know, I'm, I'm not against that. But we should have something to do. I think God has a purpose for you. Isn't that what we say? God has a reason that you're here. And no matter what, the talents, the education, the guilt, the skills, the gifts, there's something. There's something. There's a reason why God has put you here. Um, it's been said that idleness is the devil's playground. Have you heard that? Idleness is the devil's pr- playground. Idleness can lead to being distracted and going astray. And it can also lead to gossip. When you don't have anything to do, it's harder to stay on the straight and narrow. And you just get to talking. The jaws begin to move, and it's not good. It's not a good thing. And so we should have something to do. An old pastor once said it this way, parents ought to bring up their children to business, to business. You say, what? Yeah, business. Even Jesus, at the ripe old age of 12, responded to his parents, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Yeah, even Jesus was brought up to business. Amen. I think we need to bring our kids up to business, to, to doing something, to having a calling in their life. Amen. And, 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 and passing that, that sense of calling on to them. Another pastor once said, parents, give your children a Bible and a calling, a Bible and a calling. Now, you know, do more. It's a simple sentence, but, you know, give them more than a Bible. All right. Teach them the Bible but give it to them. Time came for sacrifice. Here they were doing their work, doing what they do, but the time came for sacrifice. When it came time to bring the sacrifice to the Lord, Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. The text tells us that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this is where it shows us what our place is, our first place is in the battle of seeds, and it is this, to love the Lord our God. We bring sacrifices to the Lord, amen? We're to bring sacrifices to him. The sacrifices he deserves and that he requires. We have accepted his sacrifice for us, amen? You know, it's, we serve a God who sacrificed himself for us, amen? I mean, he gave it all on the cross. He, he, he said, you know, uh, on the night that he was arrested, he's praying in the garden, uh, you know, sweating drops of blood. And there he says to the father, the son to the father, take, if, it, if, if there's any way, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he went and he poured, he, he drank the cup of the wrath of God for each and every one of us. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Passover lamb slain for us, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world given for us. So there was a tremendous sacrifice by the Lord for us. And then there are the proper sacrifices that are due to the Lord, that he deserves, that he requires. Say what? Yeah, they're not to earn salvation, but they are a response to what the Lord did for us. Amen? There's there's no earning your salvation. Salvation is a free gift. You can't do, you can't add to the perfect work of Christ. It is finished, is what he said from the cross. But in our response to the Lord, it is this. 
We are to give ourselves to him. Paul talks about us offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Look at it, Romans 12, 1. I'll have it up on the screen for you in the ESV. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Yes, there's spiritual worship for the believer, and that spiritual worship is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. That means we're giving ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. The imagery here of the living sacrifice is the imagery of the burnt offering. If you go through the five sacrifices in Leviticus, there's the first one, it's the burnt offering. The burnt offering was to be totally consumed, totally consumed for the Lord. And that's how we're to live our lives, totally consumed for him, a living sacrifice, giving it all back to him. Surrendering our lives as we've sang already tonight, surrendering to him, giving him our all. As a living sacrifice. Jesus gave his life for us and we love him back by giving our life to him. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. One of the lawyers asked him, it was a trick question. Well, it wasn't really a trick question, but they were trying to pin him into a corner. And in Matthew 22, verse 37, this is how Jesus responded. He said, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And so this is our place. And so we see the, the boys bringing a sacrifice, the men, Cain and Abel, bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. We bring a sacrifice of praise to him as well. Not only our lives, but we bring a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15, it says this, through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge, it, that acknowledge his name. And so there are other sacrifices that we bring to the Lord, but I'd say those are probably two right up there at the top of the list. Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice to God. Now the Lord respected Abel, and his sacrifice. But he did not respect or regard Cain or his sacrifice. And I believe that for, for uh, people that have read the Bible for years and years and years, for perhaps all of our lives, one of the great questions has been always, well, why? Why, why was Cain not respected? Why was Cain's offering not respected, but Abel's offering was respected and, and, and Abel was received? Why? If you look at the sacrifice that Abel brought, there is a hint as to why. First, when you read the scripture, it says a lot. Can we... Agree on that? I mean, it's a big book, <laughs> right? 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, 40 authors. Uh, it's, it's a big book. There's a lot in there. But even when you're reading in the various passages, have you ever been reading a passage and really wished, man, I wish that, that was, you know, I wish there was a little bit more detail there. I really wish we knew a little bit more about what was going on there. Well, I, I take the position that the Bible, 
the words of the Bible are written in the way that they are, very specifically and for a, a, an exact purpose. And so they, they, they accomplish the purpose for which they are sent forth. Amen? Uh, now, there are other places that uh, other details of the stories are available. Uh, and, and those details, some of them can be gleaned from these books. They're not in the canon of Scripture. Notice I didn't say we're going to build any doctrines from any other books, but we can gain some details from some other books. Uh, let's call these biblically endorsed extra biblical texts. Biblically endorsed. Now, when you say biblically endorsed, what do you mean? I, I say where the Bible specifically relies upon the content of another piece of literature to make its point, okay? So, uh, so it's, it's not equating that with the word of God. It's not saying it's canon. It's not saying it's, it's to be uh, put in with, with this collection of books that we call the Bible, but there are places within the word that there are, shall we say, biblically endorsed extra biblical texts. And there are a few, I only want to give you a couple of examples just to kind of make this point tonight. One of them is called the book of Jasher. Jasher is leaned on for the historical reliability of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10. I'll read Joshua chapter 10 verse 13. You'll see it on the screen. And this is what it says. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So the writer of Joshua is actually appealing to the historicity of Jasher here. Joshua, a, a book that we would say, this is canon, this is scripture, is appealing to the, the historical reliability of the book of Jasher. Another one is the book of Enoch. And it is, quote, is directly quoted in the scripture in the epistle of Jude. Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter. So Jude, <laughs> Jude 14, it says this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A lot of ungodliness <laughs> that was present during that time. And this is a quote from the book of Enoch. So there, you, there are some details to be gleaned from these biblically endorsed extra biblical texts. Okay, Charles, why, why are you telling us about this? Well, when you read the book of Jasher, you discover that God did give them, from a very early date, God did give them a system of sacrifices. We, we think of, as we read the, the canon, 
And we don't pick up on that as we read it, especially in English. We read it and we, we think like, you know, at some point, you know, the, there was sacrifices being made, but we don't really get a, a clear picture from Genesis, at least early on, exactly what the precision is there. It's, a, it's, 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 not, it's not real crisp in that sense. But when you look at these other texts, you see that there was a sacrificial system. Now, from the canon, we can actually deduce, even from our last study, when God provided the covering for Adam and Eve. Remember, he found them naked in the garden. They had sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And what did God do? He, he did not allow them to be covered by their own works, but he provided a work. He, uh, there was a blood shed. There was the, the shedding of innocent blood. The life of the blood uh, was there as a sacrifice in that sense. And those skins were then given to Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. And from this, we can see at least a little bit in the sense of kind of that first sacrifice, that first uh, uh, atoning work, if you will, that kind of foreshadowed to the atoning work of Christ. But there is that sacrificial system that's a little bit crisper early on in some of these other works. And so when you look at Genesis 4, verse 4, you can even now deduce a little bit of that from the verse. Let's put it up on the screen so we can look at it. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and of their fat. And I want to suggest to you that this is hinting at and uh, pointing us towards uh, part of what would become and what was the sacrificial system that was delivered to Adam and Eve and thus delivered to the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, but then that would eventually be delivered through the angels, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, to Moses in the Levitical sacrificial system. And I'll give you an example in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 13, this is, again, I just referenced this earlier when we're talking about the five Levitical sacrifices, the five sacrifices in Leviticus that perfectly represent the, the sacrifice of Christ for us upon the cross. And this is what it says in chapter 1 of Leviticus, verse 13, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head, and here it is, and its fat. And if you sit down and do the work and read the book of Leviticus, you will see that there, were, there was uh, care given to exactly how they were to handle the fat and the entrails. Have you read Leviticus? Raise your hand. If you've read, you've, you, you know, you've been doing your devotion. You said, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. You read through Genesis. It was very interesting. Exodus. And then you got to Leviticus, right? And you're like, oh, goodness, you know, all these sacrifices and entrails and, 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 and all this stuff. And what is it? Yeah. So... Here we have Abel bringing the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And as we go through the various sacrifices in Leviticus, we see that this was part of the Levitical system. So with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. Verse 13, or 14 rather, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So from this, 
from these details and from these connections, I think that we can kind of come to a better little crisper idea of exactly why it was that the Lord rejected Cain and his offering. It seems to me that there was, there was a command. There was a proper way to bring a sacrifice. There was the command to bring a firstborn of the flock. There was a, a command to bring the fat of it in a certain way and present that in a certain way to the Lord. And so it seems to me that Cain, and it clearly says that he was not accepted by the Lord nor his offering, that Cain was kind of doing his own thing. That Cain was kind of doing whatever he wanted to do. He just had it in his mind. Well, you know what? I know that, you know, this was given to us and we're supposed to be doing this, but I'm just going to kind of do my, what, what I want to do. You know, I'm going I'm to give, uh, I'm going to worship the Lord how I want to worship him. And now this is a thinking process that you see in a lot of people. People will think that God accepts whatever kind of worship people want to bring to him. You know, we can, we, you can just go out and just do whatever you want. Now, there is freedom in the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But there are things that are not the, the proper way in which to bring that sacrifice to the Lord. And there's, there's, there's that way. There's that way to sacrifice to the Lord. And for us, as we come to the, to the whole of Scripture, we see that the way to come to the Lord is through complete surrender. It, it, you could put into category of not, not completely surrendering, not fully giving your life, just kind of going through the motions or maybe just kind of you know, rattling off some verbiage. Maybe there was some you know, peer pressure in the situation. Oh, well, I'll kind of go along with it for, the, you know, for, for just everything that's going on. But there really wasn't that heart of surrender to the Lord. And, and that kind of would be in that camp of, you know, really, that's not really what the Lord's looking for. The Lord is looking for a contrite heart. He, he's looking for, he looks upon the heart. He doesn't look upon the outward. Maybe it looked, uh, to the outward, it looked like so great and everything was super cool. But to the inward, God looked upon the inward and he didn't see the contrition of the heart. He didn't see the humility. He didn't see, see that that person humbling themselves under the mighty hand of the Lord, that they would be exalted by him. You must make him and confess him as Lord of your life. Amen? People think to themselves, oh, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. I'm just doing my thing. I'm just doing whatever I want to do. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'll be all right. You ever heard anybody say that? I hear, I've heard people say that all my life. I'll be all right. Be careful. Be careful. Now listen, it's not complicated. It's not complicated, but it is precise. It is precise, the response and worship that Jesus is looking for. Surrender to him, confessing him and making him Lord of your life. This is salvation. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you believe in your heart and confess, confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Paul says, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. So Cain and his sacrifices were not regarded. They were not respected. And Cain, Cain became very angry. And the Lord asks him. Now, I like this, actually. When I, read, when I went back through this and I, and I saw the Lord coming to, to Cain and saying, well, why are you angry? Cain? 
you, you, you know how this works and what we, the command. Why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? I mean, honestly, you see the heart of a loving God. You see the heart of a loving God. A, who goes to have the conversation with Cain. B, who presents the solution. Hey, will you not be accepted if you do well? Amen. You just love the Lord. You see, you see his loving heart all the way through, throughout Scripture. All the way throughout Scripture. People do... And maybe you could, you know, maybe you can lump yourself in here with this. Maybe I could lump myself in there with this at, at a certain point in my life. But people will do what's wrong and then get angry when they suffer the consequences for it. Right? They'll do what's wrong and then they get angry. The consequences start coming in. The, the, whatever, the, whatever the consequence is for that particular action and then, and then they get angry. For that, you know, they get, they get angry at the consequences that have happened. Maybe it's consequences within the, the, the social structure that they're in, or it's, a, it's, 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 it's some type of consequences. And people get angry. And then they get angry with the Lord. People get angry with God about what they've done wrong. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. People get angry with God for what they've done wrong. It's like, here's God having a conversation with Cain, wanting to, I think, kind of straighten him out. Hey, bring him back into the fold here. Bring him down from, from wherever he is, bringing him down from this anger. But he's angry. It's our place in this battle of seeds to love the Lord, to bring the sacrifice that is required, that is due him. And we do that by offering him everything that we are making him the Lord, master of our lives. We give, him, we give our lives to him, we live for him. Now, people want to do their own thing and then blame everyone else, including God, for the outcome. And this is what Cain did. And then the next part of our place in the battle of seeds is to love our brother and our neighbor. Let's pick it up, let's pick it back up, verse eight. It says this, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Our second place, our first place in the battle of seeds is to love the Lord, 
our God. The second place, our second place, is that second commandment, really, to love your brother, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in this particular section of the passage, Cain and Abel were out in their fields. They were out in the fields. They're kind of doing their thing. They're doing their work. Cain working the ground, Abel watching over his flocks. And they talked, and I'm sure it came up. I'm sure it came up that Abel's sacrifice was regarded, that Abel was accepted, that he was regarded, but Cain's sacrifice was not regarded, that Cain was not regarded in that sense. And it came up and they talked and, and Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Killed him. And from this moment forward, Cain becomes an example of what not to do. He becomes an example for us of what not to do in terms of our relationships, in terms of our relationships with our brother, our, our, our family, our, the people in our lives, that we're not to, to, to be abusive, that we're not to, to bring the ultimate abuse, that, that hate and, and this type of thing, and, and, and in this situation, really a murder. We have Abel that is presented to us as you know, kind of an example of what to do, of how to serve the Lord. In fact, in the hall of faith, not the hall of fame, but the hall of faith, amen? Hebrews chapter 11, verse four, it says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So here, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, perhaps Paul, we don't know, but perhaps it is, he's letting us know that, Cain, that Abel's sacrifice was a more excellent sacrifice and that he obtained a witness that he was righteous. And so Abel is presented to us of what to do, of, of this righteousness, of honoring the Lord, of loving the Lord. And then Cain becomes this example of, of anger, anger that leads to hate, hate that leads to all kinds of abuses in relationships. And the Apostle John is even more revealing about Cain and what his situation was. We see that Abel was a person of faith in God, but Cain went in the, in the direction of the devil. Look what John, the Apostle John says about Cain in his epistle, 1 John 3, verse 11. It says this, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was, what? Of the wicked one. And murdered his brother. So what is it that John the Apostle is telling us? Cain was of the devil. He was of the wicked one. He became, in that sense, the, the spiritual seed of the enemy, of the devil. And later... Jesus would talk to the Pharisees and he would, he would actually bring the same accusation towards them when they were not receiving him. And, and, and Jesus charges them and he says, you are of your ancestors who killed all the prophets, beginning with Abel all the way to Zacharias who di died between in the, in the, in the temple, was, was killed in the temple. And you've killed the prophets. And you're of that same seed. He goes on, he says, he said, you know, here John says, Cain, who was of the wicked one, 
Jesus says, you're, you're, you're sons of snakes. You're the seed of the snake. A brood of vipers is how most of you know it. But I changed it <laughs> to what, it really, what, what he's really saying in a modern vernacular. You sons of snakes. You sons of the snake. And so, wow. It becomes an example for us of that hatred of the devil toward the seed of Adam and the seed of the Lord. And, and you see this enmity that was, that was told of by God all the way back in Genesis 3. And it still exists today. Some of the, sometimes when you see the enmity in the world today and down through history, you scratch your head, you study it, and you scratch your head, and you say, how, how can there be this type of animosity? How can we can't get, get to, to some type of a solution with some of these situations? It's because there's, there's, a, there's an enmity that goes all the way back to, to the very curse of sin. And... You're either a seed of the Lord, you're either the seed of the Lord, or you're a seed of the wicked one. You're of the wicked one. Wow, Pastor Charles, that's, that's heavy-duty stuff. Well, Jesus taught three separation parables in the Bible that lay this out for us very clearly. He says there's, there's wheat and tares, there's good fish and bad fish, and there's sheep and goats. Read all three of them. There's a separation. He separates out one from the other. These are all the seed, either the seed of the Lord or the seed of the wicked one. The Lord asked Cain, he said, where is your brother? Where is your brother? Now, this wasn't a geography question. It wasn't a question about the geography of Abel. It was a question where God wanted to know from Cain what in the world was going on. Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? What have you done, Cain? The voice of your bro brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And then the curse comes to Cain. Cain is then cursed from the ground. The curse to Cain is that you're accursed from the ground. The ground will always curse the one that spills innocent blood. This is a biblical principle. You need to understand this principle. This is, as sure as I'm standing here and you can hear my voice tonight, this is a surefire biblical principle. The ground will always, the, the, the person who spills innocent blood to the ground, there will always be a curse to that person. How do you say the Lord gave a warning to Israel when he brought the people out of the land of Egypt and he was bringing them into the land of Canaan and he was going to use the armies of Israel to, to dispossess the Canaanites from the land. And he gave them a warning. He said, when you come into the land that I am giving to you, do not let your children be passed into the fires of Molech. Okay, this is what the judgment of God was on the Canaanites that they had given their, from the, the, from the product of their sexual immorality that had brought these children and they offered their babies on the brazen arms of Molech and allowed their babies to be given over to the gods in, the, in, in these ceremonies. And that innocent blood poured out on the ground of Canaan 
It was the judgment of God that finally brought an end to that through the army of Israel that brought an end to that in the slaughter of the innocent. There's a principle of the slaughter of the innocent that you need to understand. It goes all the way up to Moses when Moses was born and it goes all the way up to the birth of Christ. And it continues to this present day. The innocent blood taints the ground. I did, I did a whole piece on this, on being pro-life is the old being green. <laughs> you wanna be green, you wanna protect the land, you wanna be with that program, then you be a person who protects the, the, the blood of the innocent, amen? Because the blood of the innocent cries out from the ground. And he's, God warned them and said, if you do this, what, what the Canaanites have done, and this is the language that God used, the land will vomit you out too. God help us. God help us. Well, there's coming a time. There's coming a time. This separation is coming. Amen? So Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is too much for me to bear. Anyone who finds me will kill me. So God marked Cain and said, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So what is our place when it comes to those around us and especially those who may even seem as enemies? To love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, went so far as to say this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Cain is an example of anger, hate, evil. And we are not to follow in those footsteps. We're to love our brother. We're to love our neighbor. Jesus, in his response to the question about the greatest commandment, said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord God. And the second greatest is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. And Jesus explained who our neighbor is in the parable of the Good, the good Samaritan. Who was a neighbor to the one, the, the man who came among the thieves? Who was the neighbor to him? So, let's draw this to a close. Here we are today. We're in the middle of this war zone. Here we are in the middle of this battle of seeds. And our place in this battle is really two commands. We're given two commands in the face of this entire battle that we're in, this struggle that we're in, this spiritual warfare that we're in. We're given two commands to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. What kind of a strategy is this in war? What kind of a warfare plan is this? Well, God comes up with the most interesting and powerful war plans. Amen? Remember when you know, they came across the Jordan River and here they're gonna go up against Jericho and what does he do? Joshua, have all the men circumcised. <laughs> you know, what? You're gonna circumcise all the men right in front of Jericho in the plains at Gilgal? What kind of a battle plan is this? It is to show us that the battle is the Lord's, amen? And we're, we may be in the midst of the battle, but he is the lion of the tribe of, Ju of Judah, and he is fighting our battles for us, amen? The, the, the battle belongs to the Lord, and we're in the middle of it, and we're given two commands, to love the Lord and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, Paul takes up this in Ephesians 6. 
In Ephesians 6, 12, he says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Amen? This is the armor, this armor of the battle, the battle of the Lord. This is the armor, and it is all about loving and trusting God. Look at each piece. What's it all about? Is it about, is it, is, is it, is it about doing, you know, take, taking somebody out? No, it's literally every piece of it is about loving God, trusting God, taking up the shield of faith, putting on the helmet of salvation, putting on your mind and on your brain that the Lord is in control and he's your savior, amen? And, 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 and just trusting him and going to him with the word of a prayer. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4, he says this. You'll see it up on the screen. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So here we are in the middle of the uh, of a war zone, a danger zone, a battle of seeds, and we're given two commands. We don't have weapons the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the, for the pulling down of strongholds. And so here's the command. You're, you're a member of the family of God. You're a member of the kingdom of heaven. You're, the, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're a, an ambassador for Christ. And you're sent into, the, into this battlefield with this command to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's the command. Just go drop love bombs wherever you go. Amen? Just, just, just you want to drop some bombs? Drop love bombs wherever you go. Love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? Your place in the battle of seeds. It's still going on. God's got it under control. But he's called you to be where you are, doing what he needs you to do, and being his representative. Amen? For such a time as this.